This is the story of um, Jesus choosing his disciples. And uh, I'm going to read it, assuming that it's telling us something about Jesus uh, choosing us as well. The interaction that he has with those um, men on that day, he has with us still this day a similar kind of interaction. And I've got several statements about what Jesus does and what we do. Um, So let's just get into it and follow that through through the passage. Jesus chooses you, so follow him. It's the first thing I want to say. Jesus chooses you, so follow him. Look at verse 35. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. And when the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Now, I'm diving straight in, but let's, let's go. John, this is kind of like a relay race of salvation history at this point. So what's happened is John the Baptist, who some people call the last of the Old Testament prophets, not because he was in the Old Testament, but because he's like an Old Testament prophet in that God anoints him to speak the word of God and to point forward to, to the future Messiah and to tell people to repent of their sins, which is what the prophets did, and that's what John the Baptist does. And this moment in these verses is like the very last gasp of his official ministry and he's about to hand his salvation baton over to Jesus. His words, look, the Lamb of God are his last, it's his last official sermon. He's already publicly described Jesus this way in the baptism to a big crowd and then he says it again privately to two of his own disciples. In some ways, John the Baptist is a bit like Moses because Moses too took the people of Israel up until a certain point, but then Moses himself could not go through. Moses got to the promised land but couldn't get into the promised land. And John the Baptist too brings the people to the Messiah, but he himself cannot do the role of the Messiah, so he has to hand that baton over to the actual Messiah. Now John the Baptist's role is to decrease so that Jesus can increase. He says later on in chapter 3, verse 30. One theologian says it this way, To recommend disciples to a greater teacher was rare, required great humility, and denoted confidence in the other teacher's superiority. And that humility is what we see in John. He wasn't interested in building his own ministry or kingdom um, just for the sake of it. He took second place and willingly handed over his disciples to Jesus. That's a good principle for us, to not hog all the good people in our ministry. Uh, we should not hold on to our teams too tightly uh, as if they're ours to, to possess. They're God's people and he will use them as he pleases. And John understands this. The reality is that anyone in your team, anyone in your community group, anyone in your play group, anyone in your youth group, anyone in your um, ministry of any kind and variety, they're not trophies for you to show how successful a leader you are. Rather, they are God's people. Now they are with you, but tomorrow they may not be. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's the kind of attitude we're to have. And you can tell the truly great leaders because they willingly hand over their people to other, even greater leaders. There will come a time in the next few years when Mary Creek does another church plant, and that's going to be a time when we get used to have to, have to get used to this idea of handing people over 
to expand the kingdom of God. And those of you who've been part of sending people away, which I've been part of, the, you know, the remaining congregation that sends people away, I've been that, that, in that role before. It's painful because you're letting go of the good people, but it's all for God's glory. Anyone who's been part of a small group that's grown and split, send people away, you know that's painful, but it's all for God's glory. It's good pain. It's like the teenager that's going through puberty and your bones are growing so fast that you ache. And, and, you know, it's good pain. It's the organic pain of dividing cells and growth. So that's what's going on here. And notice Jesus um, is choosing carefully his disciples. Some of us get this funny idea about Jesus that um, the way he chose his disciples was like this. He's just walking along the road. And he, he sees a few blokes standing by the sea fishing. And he just says, hey, you, hey, you, come and follow me. Because that's so often the way it's portrayed to us when we're sort of, I don't know, doing, um, our, our, you know, reading kids' books or whatever at Sunday school. But actually, Jesus isn't random like this. He's being very careful. He's actually poaching two of John the Baptist's guys. Uh, but actually, it's not stealing because John the Baptist is willingly doing it. John the Baptist is like, like saying to his own disciples, look, there's, there's the Lamb of God over there. He's doing this strategically. Jesus is doing this strategically because he knows how these people have been developed with John the Baptist of having a um, good formation. They've been trained well. And these disciples aren't having their arm bent to go from one master to the next master. They follow Jesus not like puppy dogs. In fact, they follow him because they know he's the Messiah. And, in, and, and not only that, but Jesus turns over his shoulder and says, what do you want? He met them halfway. This is the divine initiative. God takes the first step, actually. God's already waiting for us when we, when we walk towards him. Once we start searching him out, he comes and finds us. St. Augustine said, we could not even have begun to seek for God unless he had already found us in the first place. When we go to God, he's not hiding on the road behind a rock, but he's standing at the middle of the road saying, welcome, I've been waiting for you. He's like the father in the story of the prodigal son who sees his son coming from a distance and runs out to meet him. They follow him and he meets them They have to leave their old life behind with John the Baptist, their old religious ways behind, and start a new way of life. They have to discover what Jesus has in store for them. And notice that this is not about um, who's got the most charismatic leader. This is not about who's got the biggest guru. This is actually about a confession of who Jesus is. We see from John the Baptist's cue that they realise something about Jesus that's special and unique. He's the Lamb of God. They realise we've found the Messiah. This is the one John the Baptist has been talking about. Now, it would take him a long time to realise what all those words meant. And we will read over and over again in in the Gospel of John and in other Gospels too that the disciples were confused about what the word Messiah actually meant. They had no idea that he's going to go die on a cross and rise again. They, none of this was in their front of their mind yet. Miracles, all of that. 
I yet to see. And yet they had some kind of faith in Jesus. If you've been hanging around Mary Creek for a while and yet never confessed out loud to yourself and to God, behold the Lamb of God, Jesus is the Messiah, or Jesus is the Christ, or Jesus is the Son of God. Let me encourage you, that's the main game. That's what we're here for. So it's great to have you, part of our church. It's great to have you become friends with us. It's great to have you hang out and do fun things together. But we're all doing it for a purpose, and that is to become followers of Jesus. So if you're, you have said out loud to yourself and to others and to God, Jesus is the Christ, and that's wonderful. And if you've done that but not been baptised, let me encourage you to come and talk to me at the end, and we'll organise you to be baptised. And if you haven't done that and you're not sure about it, come and talk to me as well because we can talk through it. I'd love, that's what I want. I want you to have that same realisation as those two people had on that day about Jesus 2,000 years ago. The second thing we can observe is that Jesus invites you in. So have a look at his riches. Verse 38. Turning around, Jesus saw them and asked, What do you want? And they said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying, and they spent that day with him. It was about four in the afternoon. So Jesus turns around and says, what, what do you want, or what are you seeking, or what are you looking for? They're, they're dramatic words here. They're important words, and they're, they're, they're specifically des, um, uh, chosen by the Gospel writer John, They're the first words that we hear from Jesus in the whole gospel. What do you want? And we are meant to see this as kind of a double entendre. or um, We're we're meant to hear it for for the two disciples, maybe even for ourselves too as we read this gospel. As uh, the theologian John Carson writes in his commentary, it's not taking it too far to hear these words of Jesus being asked of you. What do you want? What are you looking for? What are you seeking? And they immediately say, Rabbi, which is uh, the Hebrew word for teacher, John tells us. And in fact, Jesus is already becoming well known as a teacher. That's, his, that's the first reputation that he has. And they say that we want to know where you're staying, we want to know where you're living, and have a look in your house. Check out your stuff, your couch. So what things you've got hanging on the wall. What vinyl you collect over the years. This is an invitation of discovery. So they went with him and remained a whole day with him. Imagine doing that. Going over to Jesus' place and hanging out for a whole day. Now John the Gospel writer had already um, um, prepared us for this. Remember chapter 1 verse 14. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory. The glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. Remember, everything in the Gospel of John ties back to those first 18 verses of chapter 1. So here they are literally spending time with the Word made flesh who's dwelling among them. They're in his dwelling place, his his home. It's already coming true. Uh, They're seeing him, his grace and truth, flowing out of him. And this is what disciples do with their masters. They remain with them, they stay with them, they hang out with them. Jesus later says, abide by my teaching, and, and he says to remain in his love and to remain in him. 
This is already what they're doing. And today we still do the same thing. We were to go and see, to, to accept the invitation from Jesus and to look at him, to gaze at him. Now we can't go to his house, although I'm sure if you go to Jerusalem they'll probably have some places you can go and pay ten bucks and see the supposed house of Jesus. I'm sure it's there somewhere. But that's not the point now. The point is that when we gather with our Christian brothers and sisters, as we are doing now or in other contexts, it's like we're going together um, and we're around the, the Word of God. We're hearing from Him, teaching us by His Holy Spirit. And we discover the riches of His grace. And in verse 39, I love this bit. Every now and again, the Gospels give us sort of quirky side comments. And, and uh, the Gospel of John says, in the Greek, he says it's the 10th hour, which gets translated as 4 p.m., because they used to count the, the clock from sunrise to sunset, so 6 a.m. or 6 p.m. So 10, 10 hours from 6 a.m. is about 4 o'clock in the afternoon. And why is John telling us this random detail after all these sort of glorious theological and um, historical description? Then he goes, and it was 4 o'clock in the afternoon. It's because he's sort of putting a time stamp on this moment, and he's sort of saying to us, I think, and, and a lot of most scholars think, that he's saying, I was that other disciple. I was one of the two disciples. I was there. I can remember so much that it was four o'clock in the afternoon. It was so vivid. This was the sliding doors moment for his life. This is the new, the meeting that changed his life forever. 4 p.m. on a spring afternoon in Galilee. The third thing we can observe is that Jesus has infected you with grace. So realise that you are contagious. Verse 40. Uh, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we found the Messiah. That is the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Now these verses are actually forming an origin story. We know about origin stories because Hollywood milks them for all it's worth. You know, you can't just have Superman. You've got to have the Superman origin story or the Batman origin story, the Star Wars origin story. Well, this is Peter, the great leader of the church's origin story. And for those reading, the Christians reading this gospel at the time when it was first written, they would have gone, oh, that's how, they're talking about, they're talking about Peter. This is, the, this is how it happened. Uh, you know, they're paying attention. What did Andrew tell his brother, Simon Peter? We've found the Messiah. That is the Christ. Where, where Messiah is the Hebrew word and Christ is the Greek translation. And both words mean God's anointed king. Now let's notice two things about Andrew. First of all, like John the Baptist, Andrew takes second place. He's the lesser known brother. Of, uh, of Simon Peter, isn't he? It's like, it's like being, you know, the brother of Bob Dylan. I mean, is there a brother? You don't even know, do you? Probably. I don't know. There might be. But who cares? We, you know, it's a bit like being that brother, the, the founder of the church. It would be Peter who would go on and be in Jesus' inner circle of friends. It would be Peter who would be with Jesus when he healed Jairus' daughter. It would be Peter who would witness the transfiguration. It would be Peter who would go with Jesus to the Garden of Gethsemane. It would be Peter who would go on and lead the church. But it was Andrew who followed Jesus first. It was Andrew who told Peter about Jesus. Why wasn't Andrew in the inner circle of friends? 
In fact, what is so beautiful about Andrew is that he doesn't care. He's hoping to take the lower place. It probably never occurred to him what status he had. He was pleased that Jesus would choose his brother, Peter, to take on the responsibility of leading the church. All that mattered to Andrew was to be with Jesus, to, to look at him and to tell others about him. And that's the second thing we can observe about Andrew, because you see Andrew become the centre of the story in the Gospel of John three times. This is one of them. And the other two times, he's introducing people to Jesus. That's what he does. There is um, John 6, 8 to 9, when he brings the boy with the five loaves and the fish to Jesus. And there's John 12, 22, when he brings the Greeks to meet Jesus and to find out about Jesus. It was Jesus' joy to bring others to Jesus. He's like a missionary. He's a missionary heart. He found friendship with Jesus and spent the rest of his time telling other people about him. And after he had spent a day with Jesus uh, and experienced his love and grace and wisdom, it affected him so much, Andrew. His heart was swelling with joy that it was like he was in contagious and he just wanted to go out there and infect other people with that grace and joy. Often when I talk about telling others, telling uh, Christians about telling others about Jesus, they get kind of a uh, reaction. They kind of uh, they put up a wall and say, oh, I don't want to talk about that. Come on. I, I don't want to talk about telling others about Jesus. This is such a burden. I feel so stressed. It's just annoying People don't want to listen to me. And, 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 and when we have that kind of conversation, it's like their heart is not full. They're not full of that love and that grace that Andrew experienced. They're not infected by the grace of Jesus in that moment. And I know what that's like. I've had that same experience where you, you, you that awkwardness of talking to people about Jesus and you just feel like a stupid idiot because you're saying it strangely and they look at you strangely. But in actual fact, I know that what I'm worried about more is my own reputation and the funny looks that I am about telling them about the Messiah, the Lamb of God, the Christ. There are others, though, who are filled with that joy. Their heart swells with that love. It's like they, they're going to Jesus' house every day and they're hanging out with him every day and they just want to let it shine, let it shine, let it shine, like we sing I think we can all aim to be contagious and to have our hearts full. If you're feeling a bit stale, if you look at Andrew's reaction and think, I could never be like Andrew, let me tell you, you can. The great uh, American megachurch pastor, Bill Hybels, a bit of a, you know, it was massive in the 80s and the 90s, he wrote a book called Becoming a Contagious Christian. And in it he says, God wants us to become contagious believers who will first catch his love and then urgently and infectiously offer it to all those who are willing to consider it. This is his primary plan. The one Jesus modelled powerfully to spread God's grace and truth person to person until there's an epidemic of changed lives around the world. Now there are lots of things you can do to put people off as a Christian. We're not going to talk about that. I want to talk about Three things that you can do to be more contagious. And that might help your heart to swell. First of all, people want to see costly Christianity in you. 
This is you living your faith in a way that is costly to you. Others will see how important your faith is to you. There's nothing more unconvincing in a Christian than a person who is not living their life in a costly way, who's not making any sacrifices. They don't conform to biblical standards of morality. They, they live in luxury and wealth, and they don't stand for anything. Are you living a costly Christian life? If you want to be more infectious and have your heart filled with joy, maybe think about that, living your life more seriously for Jesus in a costly way. Be like Andrew. Live a costly Christian life. Turn away from your old life. Start again. Secondly, if you want to be contagious, go for compassionate Christianity. I think one of the problems a lot of people are having with the reaction of some Christians in America towards the current regime is, is it doesn't look like compassionate Christianity. This is not the love of Jesus we're seeing. Christianity is not all just about having your rights or having, even having the right doctrine for that matter. It's about living that doctrine out. It's about demonstrating that love of Jesus to other people. Go out of your way to serve others. This will speak so loudly to your friends. If you want to be contagious, be compassionate. And also be consistent. That's a third C, consistent Christianity. Being real, authentic and consistent. Don't be a Sunday Christian who then on Monday starts acting like somebody else. There's nothing worse than for your effectiveness for your colleagues at work or school or your, or your um, family to see, oh, I thought they had just been at church and now they're acting like, like someone who doesn't follow the teachings of Jesus. Not only be consistent with your faith, but be consistent with other people. If you say you're going to do something, do something. Don't be a hypocrite. So if you want to be contagious like Andrew, go for being costly, compassionate and consistent. Lastly, what we observe, observe in this passage is that Jesus had acted so, now you are changed. Jesus has acted so, now you are changed. Look at the last bit of verse 42. Jesus looked at him and said, this is Simon Peter, he looks at him and says, you are Simon, son of John, you'll be called Cephas." which when translated is Peter. When Jesus looked at Simon Peter, it says um, in the original Greek that it's, he actually doesn't just look at him, he gazes at him. He stares at him intensely. He looks beyond the skin into the heart. In the ancient world, people usually had two names. In places like Galilee, most people had a familiar name in their native language and then they had another name, often a Greek name, that would be used in commerce or business. So it's not that weird to have two names back then. Sometimes one name was a translation of the other name. Peter was a Greek and Cephas was the Aramaic for rock. And I've always liked the fact that my name means rock. It's coming useful. Rock. Thomas was the Aramaic of Didymus and the Greek for twin. Tabitha was the Aramaic for Dorcas and the Greek for a gazelle. I always feel sorry for people's names, Dorcas. Sometimes a Greek name was chosen because it sounded a little bit like the Aramaic name. So in a sense, Peter and Cephas are the same name, used in different languages. In the Old Testament, though, 
A change in name indicated something God had done something special in a person's life often. So remember, Abraham became Abraham. Jacob became Israel. The name changed symbolised a new thing that happened. And what this story shows us is how Jesus sees us. He doesn't only see what we are, he sees who we can become. And he gives you a calling in your life to serve him. Jesus looked at Peter and saw in him not only a Galilean, not only a fisherman, but one who had it in him to become the rock for the church. The one on whom the church would be built. And we should think of this encounter uh, between Jesus and Peter in these early verses of chapter 1 of the whole gospel as like a bookend for Peter's calling. It's the first bookend and the last bookend, the completion of that calling happens at the very end of the gospel. Uh, Chapter 21, verse 15 and 23, where the resurrected Jesus uh, cooks up breakfast on the beach and all the disciples come running in, Peter comes running in, you know, I think he's just wearing a loincloth or something, but then he's filled with shame because he, on his conscience he knew that he betrayed Jesus three times when Jesus was being taken up onto the cross and he denied him. And he knew that Jesus knew that he knew that Jesus knew that he knew that he knew that. And he knew that he was in trouble. Oh, he felt ashamed. But Jesus forgave him famously three times after Peter repented. And then he completes that calling that begins in chapter 1 by telling him that, uh, uh, that he will go and uh, feed his sheep. That's one of the phrases. He says, go and feed my sheep. And then he says, you'll go places and you'll end up with your arms stretched out, indicating the kind of death that he would have. A crucifixion just like Jesus. He's saying, you're going to die for your faith. This is how significant your leadership is going to be. It's interesting to hear when people talk about their, co- their, their stories of calling. I've been, um, I'm writing a, con- contributing a chapter to a book on um, the life of Peter Corney, the ministry, ministry of Peter Corney, who's preached here a few times, and I'm doing the youth ministry chapter. And um, so I've interviewed him lots of times, and um, so for those of you who don't know him, he's like now 80 years old this year, and that's why the book's coming out, and he, he was the first full-time youth minister in the Anglican Church in Australia back in 1965, and he went on to lead St Hilary's and kind of brought to Melbourne, the Anglican Church of Melbourne, this, this idea that you can actually minister to the countercultural movement people, the baby boomers. This is back in the 60s and the 70s. Anyway, he says to me, he was actually invited to be the youth minister at St Hilary's in 65, and in 1970 he left to do other things. He worked for Scripture Union and the Diocese of Melbourne. But he said when he left, he had this strong sense that he would be back to lead the church. He said, I just, God, it was like God said to me, you're going to come back here and you're going to lead this church. But he had no idea what that meant. And then in 1975, he became the vicar. Often calling kind of works like that. I have a sort of a strangely enough similar story, not that I was going to lead St Hilary's, but back in 1996, I was searching God out and I was saying to God, God, what do you want me to do in my life? At that time, I was 30 uni at um, Melbourne Uni, studying my viola. And I talked to lots of people and prayed with lots of people. And I had this dream that I was standing in St Hilary's 
uh, singing a song and my name was the, the composer of that song. Now the strange thing about that is I was attending St Hilary's at that time, I've been there like once, and I had no desire to be a minister in the church, I had no experience in ministry, so it didn't make any sense to me. Five years later, there I was standing in St Hilary's and singing a song up there with my name attached to it, exactly like I had ever dreamed. Now, what I'm saying is I had a kind of a sense that in hindsight I could see God was answering my prayer about what God wanted me to do with my life. Not necessarily work at St Hilary's, although that's what I did, but that you will go and work in the church. But when we think about calling, we've got to be careful. Sometimes we get some message from God, but we've got to have a clear picture about what the Bible says. Because firstly, we all have a calling. If you're wanting to know what God's calling is, well, everyone's got a calling, and that's to live the costly, compassionate and consistent way for Jesus. To live fully for Jesus, to live that out in your life. That's your calling. Start today. Don't wait for an angel to appear at the end of your bed. Serve him in whatever way you can. And secondly, we can receive a more specific calling, but it's not promised. And sometimes that calling comes from the Holy Spirit and you won't know what it means until later on in life and you look back and you say, oh, is that what that meant? But usually your calling comes from a variety of sources. This is the way I think most people can determine their calling. First of all, you can ask yourself a series of three questions. What God's calling is on your life? If you've got a sense that God is calling you to something, this is, this, this is if you've got a sense that God's calling you to something. Ask yourself the first question. Is the thing that God is calling you to biblical? Uh, because if you think God's calling you to be a rock star, I will sit you down and I'll say, I, I'm just not sure about that. Not because it's necessarily unbiblical, but there's nothing in the case in the Bible, thing in the Bible says that God's got a great sort of desire to make people into rock stars. Uh, often people's ego gets in the way of listening to God. Try and work out if what thing you're doing consistent with the Bible. Secondly, has God gifted you to do the thing that you think he's calling you to? One reason I started to realise that God had called me to plant churches was because I'd started mustard and started a congregation at St Hilary's. And I thought, I, I like starting things. This seems to be something God's gifted me for. Perhaps this is what God's called me to do. And it's common in churches for, you know, to meet people that think they're called to all kinds of things, but they're not gifted for it. So I remember this is one guy that um, came to me and said he thought God had called him to play guitar in church. And when I watched him, you know, over every worship song, I'm, I'm, this is true, he played like Van Halen riffs over every song. doesn't matter what the song. I was like, I'm just not sure God's calling you to this, you know. The third thing is, have other wise Christian leaders in your life agreed with this calling in your life? Do they see that in you? Because if you're called to something, usually you'll find others will tell you, yeah, that seems to ring true. If those three things, you know, those checkpoints line up and you walk through that door and doors start to open, then you can start to see perhaps this is God's calling on your life. But remember, you're already called to live this costly, compassionate, consistent life. And as you live this out, seek God out. See, Jesus sees in you not only who you are now, but your full potential. He says, give your life to me and I will make you into something new. Follow me and I'll take your filthy rags and I'll turn them into glorious garments. 
Be my disciple and I will fill you with my spirit and give you gifts so that you can serve the church in my kingdom. Once someone came up to Michelangelo who was just chipping away at this big block of marble and they said, what are you doing? And Michelangelo famously said, I am releasing the angel imprisoned in this marble. Jesus is the one who sees and can release the hidden potential in all of us. He chooses you, so follow him. He's inviting you in, so take a look at his riches. He's infected you with grace, so be contagious. He's acted, so know that you are changed. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for Andrew. Thank you for John the Baptist. Thank you for Simon Peter. Thank you for John the Gospel writer. Thank you for Jesus. And we pray that we can be people who um, are faithful disciples and that um, pursue you and that become contagious and that, and that seek out your calling on our life. Amen.